Scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 6, verse 11, through 7, verse 6. If you're using a pew Bible, it's found on 1754. Starting in Romans 6, verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin... You wholeheartedly obey the form of our teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? There is a vast difference between the statements, you must do this, and I want to do this. Between do this and live, and live and do this. 
Paul's gospel of grace was being misunderstood and therefore challenged. They were saying, since I have complete forgiveness in Christ, and he paid the penalty for all my sins, it doesn't really matter how I live, does it? That was the sentiment. Such a misunderstanding of the gospel led to trivializing sin and the call to holy living. And it's very important for us to understand and balance both sin and grace, law and grace. I read this excellent statement by uh, Dr. Cornelius Plantiga. He was a former uh, professor and president of Calvin Theological Seminary, and he highlights the value of accurately speaking about sin and grace. To speak of sin by itself To speak of it apart from the realities of creation and grace is to forget the resolve of God. God wants shalom and will pay any price to get it back. Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Moreover, to speak of sin by itself is to misunderstand its nature. Sin is only a parasite, a vandal, a spoiler. Sinful life is a partly depressing, partly ludicrous caricature of genuine human life. To concentrate on our rebellion, defection, and folly. To say to the world, I have some bad news and I have some bad news. Is to forget that the center of the Christian religion is not our sin, but our Savior. To speak of sin without grace is to minimize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, and the hope of shalom. But to speak of grace without sin is surely no better. To do this is to trivialize the cross of Jesus Christ, to stake past all the struggling by good people down the ages to forgive, accept, and rehabilitate sinners, including themselves, and therefore to cheapen the grace of God that always comes to us with blood on it. What had we thought the ripping and the writhing on Golgotha were all about? To speak of grace without looking squarely at these realities, without painfully honest acknowledgement of our own sin and its effects, is to shrink grace to a mere embellishment of the music of creation, to shrink it down to a mere grace note, In short, for the Christian church, even in its recently popular seeker services, to ignore, euphemize, or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. For the sober truth is that without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. In the past, the emphasis was on sin and the do-nots. And unfortunately, that often turned into legalisms. But today, the pendulum has swung the other way, to the other extreme, and given rise to almost a cavalier attitude towards sin and a presumption on God's good grace. God knows we are weak, and he forgives but that cannot become an excuse for us not to try. 
to not to try to avoid sin in our lives. But what Paul needed to address about sin and grace in his time is exactly the same thing that we need to address today. According to a Barner survey, 19% of those who are living with a partner outside of marriage identify themselves as evangelical Christians. 19%. A well-known megachurch, Willow Creek, that is built on a purpose-driven church model, found that although 91% of its people stated that their highest value in life is having a deep personal relationship with God, 25% of them, of the church's singles, 38% of its single parents, and 41% of its divorced members admitting to having illicit sexual relationships in the last six months. A Barna survey found amongst evangelicals, 50% of Christian men admitted to be addicted to pornography, and 20% of women. Things that were once deemed sinful are now being winked at by the Christian church. So Paul's question reverberates to us. Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his great book on discipleship about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Cheap grace calls us to live without holiness. And yet Peter, the Apostle Peter, exhorts believers in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. And the writer of Hebrews cautions us in 12:14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see God. Holiness is to be set apart to God and the conduct befitting that separation. It is to make every effort to be right according to God's word. The call to be holy isn't restricted to clergy or missionaries. The call to be holy is for every single believer. It involves both the Holy Spirit and the individual. When the Spirit births faith in us and we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, then he also begins the process of what's called sanctification, which involves a separation from sinful habits and sin itself from the past. That's what true repentance is, a turning away. It is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal condition or our justification before God. The Holy Spirit within us gives us the power 
to resist and overcome sin and temptation in our lives. And while it is all of grace and God will see that we are indeed sanctified and it will come to pass, this is a cooperative effort. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, made holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. A call to holiness. Unfortunately, we don't hear about that much anymore. The Apostle Paul in Romans tells us, you are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. We need to live as if we are alive to Christ. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. We must cooperate with the Holy Spirit within us and ignore and resist sin that tempts us. We could not win this battle if the Spirit were not within us. The Puritan John Owen noted, the Spirit alone is sufficient for this work all ways and means without him are useless. He is the great efficient. He is the one who gives life and strength to our efforts. But this is why so many New Year's resolutions fail. Fail to be better people, to clean up my act. Because Paul here is not talking about self-help. Paul is not talking about just think positive thoughts. He's talking about yielding to the Holy Spirit in your lives and living holy before God. He actually goes on and he calls it slavery. Now this might seem strange, if not right down, downright offensive to us to talk about slavery, but that's what he says. You see, every individual is a spiritual slave. They are either slaves to sin, which leads to death, or you're slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness in life. There's nothing in between. You're one or the other. Paul's exclamatory answer to the question, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace, says, by no means, or God forbid. How can that be? It's inconceivable. He goes on, he says, don't you know? Because a slave obeys his master. Who's your master? A slave obeys his master. It's either one or the other. It's either sin or it's God. 
Chapter 6 closes with Paul's appeal to consider the consequences and the benefits of your slavery. What benefit did you reap at the time when you did the things that you're now ashamed of? You know, all of us as Christians have a past. And many things in that past we're ashamed of now. And he's asking, where were you going with that? That was leading to death. But now you've been set free from that. Now the past is the past. And Christ has taken it away. We have a new master. And we need to obey our new master. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And Paul contrasts the before saying, at that time, with those great words, but now. How can you continue to sin, to listen and obey the old master when now you are free and you have a new master who calls you to holiness and righteous living? And God promises eternal life for all those who follow him. And when we start in chapter 7, it almost seems like Paul changes the subject somewhat, but in reality, he's still talking about the law and grace. He brings up the law of Moses because the law highlighted sin. And he often uses them as interchangeable terms. The law constantly exposed one's failure to keep it and hence suffer the consequences of breaking the law. And James writes that if we break but one element of the law, we're guilty of the whole thing, breaking the whole thing. And he starts with an illustration from marriage. <clears throat> A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but when he, he dies, she's free, and we all know this. This argument replaces the previous master-slave relationship example with a husband-wife illustration. The main point being is that, that Paul is making that we are no longer under the law or married to our first master, the law. The law is a hard taskmaster. It's a demanding husband. To satisfy the law, one must meet every single condition and requirement or be guilty and punished. And the people understood that that was an impossibility. Certainly a wife could never please such a demanding husband. But should that husband die, as we sung, free from the law, oh, happy condition, She can marry another, one who has already fulfilled all those requirements of the law, meaning Jesus, Jesus Christ. To die to the law, to be not under the law, is to be freed from using it to try to gain salvation, to do enough works to earn a righteousness which can never be done. But notice what he does not say. He does not say 
the law died. It says we died to the law. That's because the law has not died. The law has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And for all those who are in Christ, the law has been fulfilled. But we have died to the law in the sense it no longer can judge us because the law cannot judge a dead man. We have died to the law. It can only turn, and when it turns its attention to Christ, he has fulfilled it completely, perfectly, on our behalf. And we are not under the law. We are in Christ. Now believers are under grace. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, and we are expected to bear fruit to God, the text tells us. Now here's purpose for the new year. Bear fruit to God. A true New Year's resolution. But what does it mean? Certainly it excludes sin and living a life that's contrary to God's design, which only bears fruit to death. As someone wrote, the gospel which offers justification and freedom from the law through faith in Christ never gives the believer any liberty to turn that freedom into license to practice acts of the sinful nature. Rather, the fruit that we ought to bear has to do with what we read back in the beginning of Romans 6 about our baptism, walk in newness of life. This is a life filled with and marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 has a lot to say about our freedom in Christ. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is singular. It's not the fruits. We should picture a cluster of grapes rather than separate individual fruits. Producing fruit means spiritual growth, demonstrating Christ-like behavior in our lives each day. And what is striking are the words, against such things there is no law. The consensus says the law he's talking about, there is the law of Moses. This fruit of the Spirit does not go against the law because at its root they've also fulfilled the law. So though under grace, by manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, we show we have fulfilled the law because we are in Christ and showing Christ-like qualities in our life. We must remember that this fruit, this behavior, is only possible by grace. We must abide in Christ. 
We must be attached to the branch and stay attached to the branch in order to produce fruit. We must also remember that the call to be holy does not affect our justification, our salvation. You can never become more saved than you were when you believed. Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Transforming Grace, we are not only justified by grace through faith, we stand every day in the same grace. And just as the preaching of justification by grace is open to misunderstanding, so is the teaching of living by grace. The solution is not to add legalism to grace. The solution is to be gripped by the magnificence and boundless generosity of God's grace that we respond out of gratitude rather than a sense of duty and trying to earn God's favor. By holy living, the production of fruit is a sign of one's genuine faith and salvation. When people call themselves Christians, but they're living a life in worldly sin, they're only deceiving themselves. How many of us have loved ones who claim to have been made some sort of profession of faith in Christ Jesus, and yet they live like the world? The idea of going to church more than going on Christmas or Easter seems ridiculous to them. There's no fruit at all in their lives. And yet something in them tells them, well, I really have to say I'm Christian. But they're deceiving themselves. Jesus warned the disciples in Matthew 7, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit by their fruit. You will know them. So in this new year of 2016, since we are not under the law but under grace, let us rid ourselves of any sinful habits and determine to bring forth a harvest of holiness producing fruit unto God. Let us stop trying to earn God's favor and produce a harvest of good fruit in our lives, bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. Not because it's our duty, but it's because it's our privilege to honor our great Lord and Savior by showing forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we bow before you. And Lord, we recognize that far too often the call to holy living has fallen on our deaf ears. Lord, we pray that you would help us to strike that balance, to keep us from the choking effects of legalism, but keep us also, Lord, from lives that are filled with license. Help us to live lives touched by your grace that bring forth the fruit of your spirit 
because it is our privilege and our desire. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.